What I want to talk about today, the um, formative directions of Zionism. Um, most people don't know about the things that um, I hope to cover. And um, even historians um, who have written about um, the, uh, the rising of Zionism at the end of the 19th century have uh, managed to miss quite a lot of important parts. Uh, I've given you uh, a short uh, reading list, which I think is, uh, you know, full of excellent books. And both Ilan Pape and uh, Norma Salcha have um, filled the gap that I'm talking about and, and covered the very early part of Zionism. So I am not starting, as people normally do, with Herzl. In 1896 or 1893, I'll come to that, but I'm not starting with that. I'm actually starting with Christian Zionism in the 19th century, because Zionism was not a Jewish invention. It was a Christian invention. Indeed, it was an English Christian invention, and therefore we we have a double interest in, in that invention. So uh, you know, people know that Britain is responsible for the Palestine problem, especially people sitting in this room, and uh, people are thinking back to Balfour and to the mandate and to uh, you know Britain um, putting down the Arab revolt, etc. Um, or those of us who um, remember a bit of the early history of the 20th century might go back to the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which is now um, spoken about quite a lot because of the war in Syria and the situation in Iraq. Uh, but this is actually taking us back to 1915, and I want to talk about the beginning of the 19th century. Now, uh, Napoleon actually invents the problem. Hello. Uh, Napoleon um, has a bright idea. Um, Napoleon was a modernist, um, and in 1799 he decides that um, he will uh, cut the, um, the route to uh, India through Arabia and control it by taking Egypt. And you know what happened. Um, he fails, um, or let's put it more accurately, he succeeds amazingly taking over Egypt in, uh, with one small battle. Um, but uh, immediately afterwards, um, the British Navy defeats Napoleon in 1799, the Battle of Alexandria. And um, Napoleon runs away, uh, and where to, if not Palestine? Um, and uh, he takes most of Palestine uh, within a few months. So in a sense, the West is moving into, um, into, into the Middle East, and especially into Palestine, as early as the last year of the uh, 18th century. And uh, this is where I think Zionism really comes from. If, if you know, this is the, you know, the, the, the title of the talk, where it, where it comes from. It comes from um, European Christian uh, liberals, um, which Napoleon was one at one point in time, of course, and um, he did quite a lot to free Jews of the kind of stringent 
um, limitations that were uh, in vogue in most European countries before his reign. Uh, and in a sense, a lot of the liberal um, legislation which is passed um, uh, after Napoleonic um, victories frees the Jews uh, for the first time in Europe uh, from the strictures that were imposed on them. So uh, he combined the fact that he was liberal in that way with um, endless imperial uh, energy um, not colonial at that point because he wasn't trying to colonize um, Palestine, he wasn't trying to colonize um, Egypt, uh, he wanted to control them uh, he failed in both uh, of those tasks but he manages to do something else he manages to awaken an interest in Britain uh, that was quite dormant at, up to that point well the British were very rocked by the Napoleonic um, success of taking Egypt or overnight. This was uh, a terrible thing for the British Empire, they thought. And they thought, uh, actually, it has a point to control Egypt. And, uh, of course, you remember the Suez Canal will only come 60 years later. So this is still pre the Suez Canal. But... Um, Egypt was very important um, uh, on the way to India. So, um, of course, Napoleon had a plan not just to control Egypt, but actually to control um, the western part of India. But he never got that far, of course. Uh, so this was kind of tit-for-tat between the British and the French at the end of, uh, you know, following the revolution. Of course, the revolution <coughs> rocked the British um, upper class very much. And um, they were uh, totally rattled about the possibility of Napoleon also taking uh, Britain. And um, that there was a, a real possibility, of course. So um, anything they could do to uh, clip his wings would be a good thing. And um, so uh, Nelson moves uh, to uh, Egypt, defeats Napoleon, and Napoleon uh, ends up in Palestine, uh, which he uh, actually takes almost lock, stock, and barrel, apart from Acre. The Battle of Acre was more difficult, and he failed in that, but he took Jerusalem. Um, and, of course, when he came to uh, Egypt, he presented himself as a Muslim, uh, there were leaflets in Arabic that actually presented him as a, as a Muslim who was uh, converted to Islam because he's so <coughs> impressed by this religion and he's come to help the, the, the Muslims in, in Egypt. And uh, he didn't quite say when he took Jerusalem that he has become Jewish, but uh, his name as a, as a liberal and, and as a possible um, liberator of Jews was before him. So um, this was quite an interesting thing about Napoleon. Now, the British, of course, uh, got rattled, uh, not just because of Egypt, but especially because of Palestine. And, and I don't have a lot of time to speak about that, but you could actually have the whole evening on this um, formative period. Uh, and what happens is that uh, the British uh, upper class, um, especially the Tory party, um, uh, figures like the Israeli, for example, who comes from a Jewish background, 
Uh, he is indeed baptized, but he comes from a Jewish background. And quite a few other people um, start writing about Palestine um, in what we would now consider as a Zionist um, uh, outlook. Um, a number of um, novels, um, both by Isra Israeli and other people, have been written with a biblical um, setting in the periods of um, 1825 until 1845, yeah? Um, all in English, all by um, uh, the people from the English upper classes, and they are presenting a kind of, um, um, you know, um, an I ideal situation which is based on a, a number of British interests. Um, Britain as an empire wants to control Palestine because Palestine is the connecting tissue of Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's, it's this location which has made it impossible, impossible to ignore for any um, empire that was in the area. Yeah? So it's, look at every empire um, that... Um, has moved into either the Middle East or the Arab East, and they had to control Palestine, because to move from Asia to Africa, you had to move through Palestine. Uh, so the British um, upper class is um, quite decided that Palestine is very important for the British Empire, but they don't know how to do it. It's not a simple thing. Palestine is part of the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire is, um, is a corpse that keeps dying and, and yet breeding. And, um, you know, when historians today look at the Ottoman Empire, they don't see it as the sick man of Europe, which uh, it was described as the time. But they see it as probably the most liberal empire that controlled the Middle East ever, um, the British Empire included. Uh, so, uh, in hindsight, the Turkish Ottoman Empire was a, let, a live and let live empire. It did not destroy huge parts of the Middle East like every other empire before or since, including the British Empire. Uh, and in a sense, because it was so inefficient in its um, operations, it didn't cause much damage also. Um, but for the British to wrench Palestine and um, Egypt out of the clutches of the Turkish Ottomans is not a simple task. And they start working on it. Now, uh, I want to just, in, in a couple of sentences, to say something about archaeology. Um, archaeology as a science is an invention on Napoleon. Um, in 1799... He was the first emperor, <coughs> uh, he wasn't called it, but he was an emperor already, and he was the first emperor that understood the importance of science for empire. And he took with him 360 scientists, historians, uh, art historians, artists, uh, drafts, draftsmen, uh, painters, uh, architects, uh, you name it, he had them. 360 um, scientists and artists 
in order to present to the world um, the def definitive uh, record of Egypt. Uh, this record took 26 years to come about. Uh, Napoleon was dead when the last part of this huge encyclopedia actually was published in France. Um, each uh, of the volume is about this high. Uh, they're very heavy, and there are 29 of them. And they are really beautiful. And if you can ever look at them at the British Library or at the French National Library, they are amazing. There are not many copies left. There are something like 30 copies in the world, uh, but there were many at the time. And it includes every aspect of Egypt you can think of, um, flora, fauna, geography, um, a bit of early sociology um, about the religions of Egypt, about the history of Egypt. It's all beautifully illustrated. Um, no expense was, was spared. Um, and this is probably the only uh, serious uh, contribution of any empire to science that I know about. Um, and so... I'm mentioning this because Napoleon understood um, that what we now call archaeology at the time, it wasn't called that because it didn't exist as a science, as a this discipline yet, um, is, is very important for making claims, political claims, over territory. And so, um, in order to make a claim over Egypt, which didn't work, of course, uh, he thought that he had to have the kind of evidence um, which um, the Description d'Egypte, uh, this whole encyclopedia was called Description de, de l'Egypte, uh, would uh, give him um, a political uh, support. Uh, however, the British um, didn't like Napoleon, but they really liked that idea um, of um, the empire using science, art, uh, literature, and, and, um, and archaeology in order to control the Middle East. And actually, uh, an archaeological war starts between, Egypt, between uh, France and, and, and Britain that lasted more or less 120 years. So there's no time to go into that, but it's, it's a really fascinating topic which you can read, I didn't put it in the reading list, but you can read quite a lot about, and I suggest it's very interesting. Now, why do I mention this? Because um, two societies set up in London early in the 19th century are very important for Zionism. Uh, one of them is called... Um, where am I? Uh, the Palestine Exploration Fund. Uh, the PEF is set up in the 1860s, and uh, it is set up after a lot of British uh, politicians and intellectuals, writers, authors, artists, have actually visited uh, Egypt and Palestine on what was then called the Grand Tour. Um, and you would know about Byron and Shelley and people like that because they've written about it. But actually, quite a lot of the upper class in England ended up in the Middle East on the Grand Tour. Uh, and a lot of them have written um, about their tour. And that popularized 
Palestine yet again. Now, this was part of a very important revivalism of, of Christianity and, and Protestant Christianity specifically um, in Britain that is starting, of course, in the 16th century, but is continuing and actually picking up because of Napoleon, ironically, because of Napoleon, and because he kind of reignited the interest, um, there becomes uh, there comes um, a, a political time and a cultural time where uh, Palestine and Egypt are very important for the British upper class. Uh, why? Uh, because this Christianity needed to be grounded in some kind of fact. Because we're talking about the 19th century, and it's not enough to tell people that Jesus died on the cross. You have to actually uh, supply some kind of scientific evidence uh, that the Bible is a historical um, document, rather than just, if you want, uh, a piece of literature um, like uh, the Odyssey or the Iliad. And they actually took the Bible to be that, to be a, 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 an accurate historical document, um, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And therefore, what's better than going to Palestine, going to Egypt, which are the birthplaces of both Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and finding the evidence, the evidence for Jesus, you know, if you find, um, you know, past the cross, uh, like... Uh, you know, um, of course, we, we know uh, about that story and, and the building of the church in Jerusalem, uh, finding nails, uh, and, you know, finding all kind of evidence for uh, Jesus' life. Um, and, of course, going back to Abraham, finding uh, supposedly um, locations where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph uh, spent their childhood and so on, and of course, finding evidence for the most important thing, for the exodus from Egypt. Uh, so, Palestine and Egypt are one um, continuum in, 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 in this um, historical exercise. Um, and um, now the Grand Tour becomes an archaeological tour. It's not just going to uh, places, to the pyramids, to Jerusalem, uh, to... to uh, the, the Christian locations uh, in Palestine and in Egypt and Mount Sinai, etc. But actually, they are, um, uh, in a sense, spurred on uh, by um, the uh, great exhibition of, um, of um, the Napoleonic um, exercise of science in the service of empire. They're now doing the, the British version of that. Um, so the Palestine Exploration Fund is only the latest of many such spurts of energy, um, scientific energy, that uh, crystallize. Um, now, if you look at the um, publications of the Palestine Exploration Fund from any period, but especially from the 60s, 70s, and 80s of the 19th century, you will see in, on, in, in front of uh, each of the publications, there is the list of the trustees of the organization. And every one of those trustees is a high-ranking officer of the British uh, Imperial Army. 
Yeah? Every one of them is a colonel, a general, etc. We're not talking about lieutenants here. Um, and some of them are not just colonels, but also very high up in the Church of England, which was possible then. It, it's Today, we would think this is really strange, but then it was possible. Uh, so a lot of those people um, are, of course, related to the Church of England, but all of them are related to the Imperial Army. And the Imperial Army is actually planning on the taking of Palestine. Of course, they are sitting in Egypt for most of this period in a kind of capacity of peacekeeper, uh, supposedly, but basically the controller of Egypt. Um, and the Turks sort of accept that because, after all, Nelson has saved Egypt from, from the French, yeah? So uh, there is a kind of uneasy um, acceptance of British influence in Egypt, but no British influence in Palestine yet. Uh, now, uh, by the um, late 30s, uh, uh, the 1830s, Britain establishes a consulate in Jerusalem. And uh, the first consul is, uh, I, I put his um, two books uh, he, he's written many more, uh, and so did his wife. After his death, and, and one book before his death, she wrote three books about the period in Jerusalem. Uh, so um, the consul Finn and his wife are really important for the development of Zionism. Why? Because you can see what Britain was trying to do. It was the, the attack on Palestine was three-pronged. It was the army officers that were also in the Church of England and also were amateur um, um, uh, archaeologists. Um, at some point in time, the word archaeology is introduced and they are then professionals. Up to that point, they were dabbling in something that didn't even have a name that was very exciting. Yeah, we know archaeology is very exciting. And the task is to find the evidence for the um, veracity of the Bible. And if the veracity of the Bible could be proven, then the task for them in order to um, bring forward the second coming is, of course, follow the, the events list uh, in the book of Revelations and in other texts uh, in, in the New Testament and to bring about... Uh, those events, so that um, you know the, the world will be saved again. There will be the second coming. Now, you know, we might think today that this was a bit odd for army generals to deal with and to actually uphold, uh, but they didn't think so. And uh, what then happens is, of course, in order for the second coming to to, to come about, uh, the Jews have to go back to Palestine. This is part of the deal. Now, uh, you will know, I'm sure that people in this audience would be totally aware of the fact that uh, there is a huge following, um, which is Christian, for Zionism in the United States, because they still hold that kind of belief, and that project is not abandoned. They are now uh, approaching it with vigor over the last few decades, and, and May God help us if, if they are ever successful in any way, yeah? 
um, I don't believe in God, but for this purpose, I, I would believe in God, you know. And now, what then happens is that um, a cultural, political, scientific revolution takes place in Egypt, in, in England. Um, I say in England, it's also Scotland, of course, and to a degree Wales. So we should talk about Britain rather than England. Of course, England is the, the, the dominant partner. Um, but the, um, the church is pushing from its corner. The army is pushing for control of Palestine and Egypt and the rest of the Middle East. And, uh, of course, uh, the politicians um, are involved. And um, many of those politicians are also uh, very important writers. So you can see that we're not talking about the little scientific community here of archaeologists. Uh, archaeology is the tool for um, getting into the area. That, that is, if you want an excuse to be there uh, to map Palestine, because you can't actually have a military campaign without mapping, and I'll come to that later on um, uh, in, in a few minutes. And uh, basically what happens is one um, expedition after another is sent to uh, both Palestine and Egypt in order to do the preparation for the full control or fuller control of those territories under the British Empire. I can't really go on because um, I, I need to get to other things. But um, well, just a sec. Um, just to say that the story of archaeology in Palestine is really fascinating and I'm sure you are aware and I want to just mention one example that I'm sure most people probably wouldn't have heard about the British wanted uh, for 50 years before the first world war to have a proper map of Palestine now of course because of hot air balloons it was possible now to use um, other tools that were not available before uh, for the uh, cartographer to map large areas from the air. Uh, of course, um, then uh, photography is added, so you can take photographs from the air of large areas, and that improved enormously the accuracy of cartography. So the British are trying very hard through um, masquerading the project as a kind of um, archaeological project to have a survey of the whole of Palestine. They've done Egypt because they are in Egypt. The Turks do not allow them because the Turks are not stupid and they realize what the British are planning and they don't allow them this. Now I won't talk about all the kind of ins and outs of it just on how the first map of Palestine was completed by the British. Um, for years, the PEF, the Palestine Exploration Fund, was a tool of Christian Zionism. Um, and uh, they did quite a lot of work. And if you look at the early archaeologists, all of them are officers of the British Army. Uh, some in the Navy. But, uh, but they're all British officers. And um, at some point in time, when it became quite clear that there will be a war in 1914, the British are really 
um, pulling all the stops to get that map done. Um, and they persuade the PEF, the Palestine Exploration Fund, which is a scientific organization, nothing to do with uh, politics, of course. It just happens to have half of the British uh, ruling class on its, uh, you know, just by chance. Um, um, they're interested in science. So um, they persuade the PEF to launch a campaign of um, surveying Sinai and the southern part of um, Palestine in order to find evidence uh, for the exodus, you know, the, the, the movement through Sinai to Palestine. Of course, we now today, today know there was no exodus, it's a myth. Uh, you know, even Zionist historians had to admit that, um, not most of them, but some. Um, but the exodus uh, in the 19th century is still a very strong myth. And you remember in the 20th century, a film by that name and how successful that was. So this is a very powerful myth that is helping Zionism quite a lot. And uh, they persuade the Turks um, that this is a scientific operation and look very hard at someone that will run it so that it will be done properly. Uh, a young army officer by the name of T.E. Lawrence is chosen for this project. You would know that this is Lawrence of Arabia, so-called, but this is before he's Lawrence of Arabia. He is actually, at that point in time, as an army officer, um, doing some digging in what... Uh, would become Iraq. Yeah? And uh, he's been there for two years and he's getting on quite well, knows the Middle East, uh, knows quite a lot of, uh, about Arabia, likes the Arabs, you know. So he's uh, a good guy to put uh, as a commander of this. And Lawrence is invited to come immediately. He's given a week, uh, which in those days was uh, quite fast. Uh, to, to come to um, uh, to Palestine and Lawrence to the last of his days claimed that he didn't know that this was about mapping but you know <laughs> if you believe that you'll believe anything uh, so Lawrence is handed the project and he and one other archaeologist are actually doing the survey of Sinai and, and southern Palestine and with them, there are 12 army surveyors that are doing the real job of mapping Palestine. Um, the map is still in the PEF. Uh, they mapped it um, throughout the beginning of 1914. There was no time, you know. They had to work hard and fast, and they did it in six weeks. Now, if you talk to cartographers today, they will say to you, that's not possible. They couldn't use air, um, airplanes. Of course, airplanes existed. They couldn't use airplanes because the Turks would work out what they're doing. So they had to use only camels. And uh, camel riding, they actually, in six weeks, did the most accurate map of Palestine to this day until uh, mapping from the air stopped. This map is uh, incredible. And um, this was a great secret. They went back to Britain with a map. It was printed in a few thousand copies um, a few weeks before the war. 
and General Allenby used it in order to take um, southern Palestine in 1916 and 1917. So it, it serves its purpose. And why am I telling you this because this is just an example of how archaeology and science and culture were used by the British Empire to, uh, to, to, to further quite nefarious designs. Um, now, you, you might think this was not nefarious. I, I do believe it was. Um, and basically, um, there was, of course, something else that was happening in 1916 and 1917, and that is the Balfour Declaration, which you'll discuss next week. I'm not going to talk about that. But, of course, uh, the, the British um, uh, hoi polloi uh, are actually preparing to take Palestine well before Weizmann starts badgering them about the Balfour Declaration. Not for Zionism, but also for Zionism. Now, uh, I want to talk about the Finns and, and close this, because uh, I, you know, I think I, I outlined an area of interest, and then you can follow it up yourself. Uh, the Finns are really amazing. They were very um, firm believers, Christian believers, and also belonged to another society, which was the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews. Now, of course, if you want to bring the second coming about, you have to promote Christianity amongst the Jews. Uh, because that's, in, 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 in the Bible, it'll, ha it'll have to happen. It has to take place. So, this is a society set up a short while after the Napoleonic adventures. Um, and uh, basically, to take the Jews uh, into, the, in, in, into the Church of England, rather than to lose them to Catholicism. Yeah? <clears throat> there was a, already a battle in Palestine between uh, Catholic churches, um, between Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and the Church of England, and few others, as you know, um, who will convert the Jews. And, who, and of course, uh, it was a big price. To, to win the, the conversion of the Jews was a big price. So he was uh, quite central in this society, but he was more interesting than the kind of run-of-the-mill um, people that were in that society. Why? Because, first of all, he was a liberal person. Uh, and in Palestine, he realized something that never occurred to him before when he became consul. He lived in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, um, the, you know, the biggest uh, group of population uh, were the Jews. Um, there were not many Jews in Palestine, of course, but most of them, the biggest group, lived in Jerusalem for many generations. And he realized that they are the poorest part of the population. Now, he wasn't exactly a socialist, but he actually was, if you want, um, a typical uh, Christian uh, with, um, uh, with a social conscience. Um, many of the people in the, Liber in the Labour Party later on will come from exactly that background. So we, we know that. And he thought that he must do something for those Jews uh, while he's waiting for them to convert, so to speak. Yeah? Uh, you know, okay, conversion will happen. He, he wasn't that worried about that by that time. But he needs us to do something for those miserable sods because they love their life is really awful. Yeah? 
And he starts um, a charity which collects money in Britain and later in, in America and collects quite a lot of money under the kind of project of converting the Jews, um, actually the money goes to uh, less, um, you know, less immediate, um, uh, yeah, sorry, to more immediate needs of the community. Uh, so first of all, he realizes that the Jews in Jerusalem and in Safed and in Tiberias, uh, the three centers of uh, Jewish population in Palestine, are not working. Hardly any of them work. Uh, about uh, 25% of them are artisans. But even the artisans don't work because they haven't got any work because the Christians refuse to order anything from a Jew. The Muslims would sometimes, depending, yeah, but the Christians forget it. So basically, uh, as a big um, group in Jerusalem, most of those people are unemployed. And they live on what is called the Chalukah, which is um, money coming from the diaspora to support the Jewish uh, population of Palestine. This is collected for many, many centuries. And then in Palestine, there is, you know, you can imagine a battle about who gets what of the, of the loot from the diaspora. Uh, and this is very um, ugly, see? He dislikes it. And he thinks that um, he would do a good job in educating the Jews into productivity. And he does. And not only that, he thinks it will be a good idea uh, to actually educate them uh, into farming. Now, of course, Jews did not do any farming uh, for the, you know, 1800 years at least. Um, so, uh, for many reasons. But in Palestine, where they could do farming, they didn't, um, didn't do it either. Um, and he thinks that the best thing he could do is uh, actually uh, purchase um, some land and get uh, those Jews to actually work on the land. And he does that on the road to Al-Khalil, to, to what is called Hebron, in, 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 is, is um, a place called Karma Khalil, um, uh, in Hebrew, Kerem Abraham, or the, the vineyard of Abraham. And um, he buys this uh, piece of land, which was quite, not that great for, for farming, actually, um, and he fights the rabbinate in um, uh, the, the central rabbinate in in, uh, in Jerusalem to allow the Jerusalem men and women who have nothing to eat and uh, no work uh, to actually be allowed at his expense to work the land to till the land and produce some food for themselves. And I have to say, he is a very impressive character. You know, if you read his book and his wife's book, they are very impressive people. And this is a, a social project, not anymore the Christian project he, he came with, uh, you know, in his package when he, when he left England. But this has become a social project um, of resuscitating a community which is really um, moribund. Uh, and he's successful. Uh, he fights the rabbis. The rabbis don't agree, but the Jews are so hungry that they defy the rabbis 
and join the project, uh, about 150 of them immediately, and later on up to 500. So it's not a majority of Jews in Jerusalem, but this is an interesting project. It's the first time that the Zionist project, uh, which is totally Christian, is actually attracting Jews to farm the land in their Palestine um, at the cost of the C of E. Um, and this is becoming more expensive, and the Jews demand higher salaries than the Arabs working the land. And, and there lies a tale which uh, I have no time for. So I, I, I want to kind of like leave it there, yeah, because I've, I've got to finish pretty soon. Um, so most people don't know this history, that the first Jewish settlement um, outside of those three places on the land, a farming settlement, was actually a, a, a Christian project of the British Empire. Now, when I say the British Empire is the British consul, I don't think the British Empire as such actually planned it. But you know, these things happen in mysterious ways. And actually, he writes about it, um, and though it wasn't a British Empire project, the, the British Empire starts looking at this and saying, hey, he's got something, this guy. This is an interesting idea. What if we could get those Jews to come to Palestine and they could be much closer to us than any of the other groups in the area because they are Europeans. So if we could get Jews from Europe to come there and to live on the land and so on, we have an agency in the area that we haven't at the moment got. Now, um, I, I, I draw a line here and I want to go to Jewish Zionism. Now, of course, Jewish Zionism has a different start point and different reasoning, and different um, uh, pattern altogether. It starts mainly in 1881, after a series of very murderous uh, pogroms in Russia. The Jews in Russia live uh, in a very uh, limited area. They're not allowed to leave it. It's called a Pale of Settlement. Um, and in that area... They have um, very few occupations they are allowed to undertake. For example, pub owners, um, you know, people who deal with, with money, peddlers. Uh, they are not allowed to, to work the land, you know, the usual thing, you know those things. And of course, um, the Tsarist um, regime is coming under enormous pressure in the 70s and 80s because there is the Narodnik movement, there are social movements all over Russia um, the serfs um, in the end do get freed but then when they get freed they have no uh, livelihood whatsoever so the whole of Russia is a huge um, bomb waiting to explode socially and of course we know it did um, and those explosions are periodic and the 80s are full of proto-socialist action against the Tsar. Uh, you know, uh, bombs, etc. You, you, you know the history. And of course, um, the Tsar um, and his minister, Pleve, the, the, the interior minister, the anti-Semitic uh, interior minister, uh, find it uh, the, the best solution to actually put down those um, peasant revolts and so on is to have pogroms. Uh, we know today that this is what the ruling class in this country is doing as we speak. 
uh, they would like to have, well, maybe not pogroms, but, you know, let's start with buses going through London saying, go home, you know? And, you know, the, the, the racists will understand, the, you know, what, what we're talking about, and they will already take it up on, upon themselves, which they do. Um, the, the Russians, of course, didn't send buses. They actually sent the police to do the pogroms. And um, hundreds of Jews died in a week to begin with, and then more. Um, and this was um, the worst incidence of anti-Semitism in the 19th century. And as a result, um, it became quite clear that um, with, with the Tsar in, in place, the Jews had no real future in Russia. And a number of um, hundreds to begin with, and uh, later on it was as big as 5,000, uh, actually go maybe by foot all the way to Palestine. Uh, they are called the, the lovers of Zion. And those lovers of Zion are setting up agricultural settlements in Palestine. Um, now, um, this is East, Russia, uh, East Europe. In the western part of Europe, Jews have won um, almost all the rights that they will have later on, <coughs> including in England. And no Jew in his right mind is considering leaving Vienna, Paris, London, or Amsterdam and immigrating uh, to, to Palestine. So they read about those few thousand Jews now living in very few um, agricultural settlements, which are basically a cologne, yeah? A cologne, but without a base. And they are called colonies. They didn't um, consider another, um, a, a, another system of, of um, negotiating the locals. They immediately went into colonialism. Um, but at the moment, those colognes are supported by Jewish uh, millionaires, like the Rothschild, um, Hirsch, and so on. Um, and it's not a big deal. It's three uh, agricultural settlements to begin with, and in the end, five. So we're not talking about a lot. Um, I also want to mention 1905, because those same tensions are um, actually, uh, you know, yes, uh, in the 80s, um, socialism has not been successful in, in Russia. But in 1905, it came close to toppling the Tsar, as you know. And the failed revolution of 1905 brings another uh, round of anti-Semitism, and this time, few tens of thousands go to Palestine, and they will be the people, they are almost, um, without exception, left-wing and socialists, um, and they are, uh, of course, uh, in the leadership of uh, local groups in Russia, and therefore, um, because Jews um, typically and understandably were uh, in those groups, uh, wishing uh, rights for everyone, meaning rights for them, them as well, yeah? So if we want to have rights, we have to have rights for everyone. Uh, then um, they uh, were, of course, hounded, and um, uh, they would be the ones building the kibbutz movement. So I want to start concluding. Um, there are these two directions which create 
agricultural settlements which are mentioned. Christian Zionism, about 60 years, know, 50 years before, it starts um, as a movement, but then in the, uh, for, uh, the late 40s and, um, and, and early 50s of the 19th century, uh, there are actually Jews living on the land, and they're not doing very much, by the way, but uh, the principle has been established, a model has been built, a theory has been expounded, and this can be, the British understand this is something to, 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 um, to take note of. Herzl, who is obviously the originator of political Zionism, I don't want to go into uh, you know talking about Herzl because that will take too much, and you know you probably know about it. Um, he writes his pamphlet in total um, innocence. He didn't know very much about the Jewish settlements uh, in Palestine. Uh, he was a very um, famous journalist in Vienna, but actually did not read the proto-Zionist texts that were published. And actually, a lot of them um, were saying exactly the same things that he said in 1896, earlier, about 10 years earlier. But he didn't read them. And he didn't understand the complexity of Palestine because he knew nothing about Palestine. Um, he didn't, for example, know that Palestine is full of people. <laughs> you know, he actually believed for a long time that Palestine is a desert. Now, um, of course, he, he comes to know that um, quite quickly, but um, to begin with, he doesn't realize that. Uh, but he's moved by, uh, supposedly, uh, by the um, events in France at the beginning of the 90s, that is the Dreyfusard, um, the Dreyfus events, yeah, the, the Dreyfus affair, um, I think he is more moved by the fact that the mayor of Vienna is a proto-Nazi, um, a, a racist, a, a self-confessed proud racist, uh, who um, actually instigate anti-Semitism as official. So uh, this is, I think, more important than, uh, than what he has learned in, in Paris. And what he then works out is that uh, to begin with, what he is, is a, his amazing plan is this. He will persuade all the Jews to convert to Catholicism. This will be done in the uh, Cathedral of Vienna. He will lead all the Jews to the Cathedral to convert, uh, but he himself will not convert. <laughs> he will be the last Jew. He was a romantic. You know, you can see um, his friends, and especially the chief rabbi of Vienna, says to him, either you are mad or you're naive. If you think this is a plan, and Herzl was indeed mad and naive. Um, not to say that he wasn't quite um, an exciting and interesting intellectual. Yeah? But when it came to Zionism, he was mad and naive. And the, the chief rabbi of Vienna says to him, this is not a plan. Just forget about it. Don't tell anyone about it. Uh, unfortunately, too many people already knew about it. And then Herzl comes with another plan, which, of course, is what Zionism is today. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Just so that people yeah. can ask questions.
Yeah. Um, now, the plan is very interesting. The Jews would get Palestine from the Turkish Empire. How? He doesn't know. A, they will buy it. Nobody is selling. B, they would get another empire to get it for them. Well, nobody is queuing up yet. Um, then there was a plan that it will be infiltrated in greater and greater numbers, which is what has happened. Herzl is against it. He wants a proper mass immigration. He doesn't want uh, it, it, it. He didn't want to do it um, by you know fly by night. That wasn't his idea. He was a grand um, intellectual, and he wanted grand plans. Uh, so his book describes how the Jews of Europe will um, uproot, lock, stock, and barrel, take everything, go to Palestine, and build a new, um, uh, a new um, amazing society in the Middle East. And, um, you know, this was quite influential, of course, in Jewish circles. But what is really interesting is to read his diary where he writes the things that are not in the book. And in his diary, he says, of course, we now that I know that Palestine is full of Arabs, we have to get rid of them. Uh, read his diaries on the 12th of June, 1896, and you will be amazed. He was, I think he was on some kind of substance. <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know, it was normal then. You know, even Freud was... Uh, you know, so he was, I think, on cocaine. And um, he was writing uh, about 100 pages on that day. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, each of the entries is about three or four lines long. It's in bursts of energy. An idea about this, an idea about that. And he writes on the 12th of June, 1896, uh, that basically... What we'll need to do is to take all the Arabs, pay them a few shekels, and send them to what he calls the transfer countries, which are the countries surrounding Palestine. Arabs, you know, he is a Jew, and therefore he also is aware of anti-Semitism, and actually agrees with it. Herzl was an anti-Semite. He says so himself. Yeah? And he actually thinks like an anti-Semite. That is, you know, the peasants are not you, know, you pay them, they go. They're not tied to the land. It'll be no problem. You just pay them a little and they go. So this is called the transfer plan, which he dreams up. And he then, uh, that evening, he realizes that there are some things he hadn't resolved. For example, Palestine, he heard, is full of snakes. <laughs> well, what to do, what to do? Aha, uh -huh. well... Every Palestinian, or not Palestinian, Arab, of course, uh, he, he talks about, uh, will get five francs for every snake. Uh, so before they go, he says, before they go, they will have to clean the country of snakes, then we can, uh, can, can get rid of them. Now, of course, um, when... Herzl is translated into English and into other languages, and including the German edition, and of course Hebrew, uh, those parts of the diaries are censored. There's only one uh, version which is uh, uncensored. There are only two copies of, Br of it in Britain, 
I've actually put it on the reading list and try and get it at SOASO British Library and then you'll see all those um, things that were censored by all the other editions. So um, I want then to come to what I call, uh, I've got to finish, um, <laughs> the principles of uh, Zionism. First of all, anti-Semitism is good because it will get the Jews to move. And of course, anti-Semitism is today also understood as a good thing. Because how will we get the Jews of the, the United States to come to Palestine? You know, without anti-Semitism, they will not leave. Well, the Jews of Europe didn't leave without anti-Semitism. Herzl didn't go to Palestine. No, none of his uh, people around him went to Palestine. Actually, the only Zionists that went to live in Palestine was, um, uh, you know, uh, a, a, an English um, upper-class intellectual uh, that, you know, took this seriously, and he was a Christian. So um, these people wouldn't go without anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is not an enemy. Anti-Semitism is something useful for us to... And we should not fight anti-Semitism. Yeah? Now, a lot of the Zionists still think like that, especially the ones in Israel. And this is very worrying, because not only would they not fight anti-Semitism, but they, of course, would not find race, fight racism in the society, like in Britain. You know, the racism today is against Muslims in Britain. Is that not something that Jews should actually feel very strongly about after their history? No, it isn't, because it's nothing to do with them. What would Israel do without the United States? Please tell me. What would what, what it do? And now, of course, they're quoting China. Well, we know why. Um, so they change empires. Yeah, They move from empire to empire, like Herzl moved from emperor to emperor. Um, and when the empire becomes less useful, uh, then they move to the next empire. This is a, a halo principle. Uh, Aliyah, I don't need to talk about. Military, Herzl establishes this principle. If we need to move, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, more, more than a million people, in the end, three quarters of a million were, uh, you know, expelled forcibly, you need a military. And how do you get imperial support? You offer services to the empire. You persuade the empire of the day that only you, the Zionist movement, can give them the service that they require in the Middle East. And you know what? This is still the principle. The principle of uh, divide and rule. The principle of uh, you can rely on us because you can't rely on the bloody Muslims, on the bloody Arabs, the bloody Palestinians. All these people are not to be trusted. We are basically Europeans. Of course, we, they want to be in Europe. Um, they detest the Middle East in a sense. Uh, they want to be in America, of course, but that's too far. Um, so that principle is still there. So I want to finish by talking very briefly about what I call the three failures of Zionism, which people will probably say are the three successes of Zionism, because they only look at the short term. Now, Zionism is amazingly successful. There's no doubt about it. At the point that it is introduced, the colonial projects are finished. The big empires are losing their colonies. Britain, Britain is still there, of course, as an empire, but it's on the way out. And everyone 
that looks at what is happening understands that. So there is what I call an analytical failure. Uh, there's a failure to transcend the existing structures in, in Herzl and in those following him. And they go back rather than forward. They go back to the 19th century and choose the model of colonialism, uh, aggressive colonialism with military support, with gunboats, uh, with imperial support, instead of trying to think um, creatively. This is not possible. The second one is the practical failure. Okay, the analytical failure has happened. You know, Zionism did not propose anything apart from a military takeover of the land and an expulsion of the population of Palestine. But now that they are in Palestine, and supposedly they are socialists and left-wing and liberal and Democrats and the rest of it, and peace now and God not, you know, now that they live with Palestinians and these are human beings and they are next door to them, are they going to do all those things? Yes, they are doing all those things that were planned by Zionism. So this second failure is much more drastic but was set up by the first failure. There's a failure for imagination uh, on their part. And the last failure is the ideological failure. Um, once Israel is created, those exclusivist principles which were outlined by Herzl and followed by the early Zionists, um, and despite all the things that they spouted about socialism and kibbutz, and, you know, it's all dead anyway, but at the time they really believed in what they were doing and what they were saying, uh, they have a failure to this day um, still um, because of lack of choice talking about two states for example they would not uh, and cannot imagine living with Palestinian Arabs in the same society with the same rights uh, they are not able to give up ideologically or practically uh, the, the, the colonial imperial state I think I'll leave it <laughs> thank you very much